Greetings of peace, dear friends. Strength to you and blessings to you during this time. This is Lester, aka Father Mac, from St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Laguna Beach. And it's been a while, but it's good to be back online. And I want to continue where I left off, which is the Forgotten Desert Mothers. And I wanted to offer, and I will be sharing the next few episodes, exploring the Forgotten Desert Mothers and also some wisdom from the Desert Fathers from just a variety of books I've been spending time with and just deep, wonderful conversations I've had over time with uh, wonderful mentors. But I wanted to offer and share, using the wisdom of Laura Swan, what, in the context and of the Desert Mothers, so you have a sense of what I'm talking about as we explore the lives, the wisdom, the sayings of the Desert Mothers and the Desert Fathers. So what was the world? What was the context of the Desert Mothers? So Christianity is emerging and growing as a movement. And every generation and culture engages with and interprets the core message and personhood and life of Jesus of Nazareth. So as the Jesus movement spread throughout the provinces of the empire, every individual and every community wrestled with the meaning this message had for their lives. Diverse expressions rooted in the gospel message emerged. The ebbs and flows of growth and renewal along with individuals who inspired others to the new way of life supported this diversity. And so there were differing forms and monastic life emerged side by side with eremitic. So Christianity, if we look just through some church history, was initially a home-centered faith. The destruction of the temple in 70 CE, the diaspora of the Jewish community and the experience of increasing alienation from mainstream culture resulted in a domestic dwellings becoming homes becoming the places for community meetings. And so the local believers gathered in homes for the Lord's Supper and Baptism for worship and for meetings. 
There was no ordained priesthood as we understand it today. Women presided over their homes, a sphere of authority men would have recognized and honored, given that the Eucharist is, in part, evolved from the Seder. Women often would have overseen the breaking of the bread, sharing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was experiential. Discussions about this most central celebration of belief came much later, evolved in systemized way, and that is what we call, I think, theology. So, I've read that early believers were concerned with the imminent return of Christ and with seeking and preparing converts for this longed-for day. The early baptismal statement by Paul in his letter to the Galatians, there is no such thing as Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, for all are one in Christ. Galatians, the third chapter, 28th verse. This scripture deeply shaped the minds of the first followers of the way. Called, they were called people of the way. And there was various success, especially when there were <laughs> clashes over authority, leadership, cultural differences, and the understanding of the nature and role of women and slaves. Although never lived out perfectly, oneness in Christ was a deeply held value that the community was committed to. So it's interesting that I've read that both women and men were involved in evangelization, evangelism, and works of mercy to the poor, orphans, and prisoners. Women held leadership positions. Ancient tombstones reveal a history of women bearing titles such as ruler of the synagogue, deacon, presbyter, and honorable woman bishop. Yet there were struggles in these attempts at integration. Women and slaves shared the work of evangelism, catechesis, and the building of faith communities. Some of these faith communities were culturally Jewish, others Greek or Roman, while some emphasized the prophetic gifts. So in the 4th century, Christianity gained acceptance and became the official religion of the Roman Empire. With this transition leadership within the Christian movement, the people of the way became increasingly public. Social mores required that women remain in the home and out of the public sphere, despite Galatians chapter 3, 28, <laughs> pressure began to build for women to be removed from public leadership in conformity with custom. And I've read, in spite of all of this, 
the believing community was lively and accepting. Women were in positions of leadership, preaching, teaching, living as ascetics. The church was not yet organized as it is today. Leaders were called forth from the community to serve as teachers, preachers in a in prophetic roles. Prophetic utterances and charismatic healing gifts abounded. Some bishops even supported women as prophets and aesthetics, while others tried to control and minimize their influence. The prophetic role tended to be outside the increasingly regulated life of the church. I've read it was much easier for bishops to monitor and influence teachers than they could those who claimed to be prophets speaking in the name of God. So there were those who decided to dedicate themselves to the aesthetic life and they sought a spiritual elder. An Amma or Abba was someone seasoned in the aesthetic life who was known to have reached a level of maturity and wisdom and had experience in teaching by example, exhortation, story and instruction. The ritual of Receiving the monastic garb and often the monastic tonsure occurred at the beginning of the Amma-disciple relationship. I've read that there was a deep spiritual bond that formed as the Amma taught more often by example than by words. The disciple prayed as the Amma prayed. The disciple worked with the Amma weaving baskets, rope and cloth and distributing arms to the poor as the Amma did. Aesthetics were committed to supporting themselves completely by the work of their own hands. The rejection of Roman social status included rejecting unearned wealth from the labor of slaves and servants. I also have read that the, as the Amma's Honored and valued silence, talk was kept to a minimum. The desert Amas recognized that our words ha, reveal our heart and cautioned their followers to be wise about what they said. Their silence enabled them to receive, savor, and ponder the life-giving word. The desert way of Amma and disciple was one of hard work, a lifetime of striving to redirect every aspect of body, mind, and inner world toward God. These Amas were practicing in peeling back the layers of silence, pierced to the core the hearts of fellow seekers and laid bare for them the voice of the living God. The desert Amas dedicated time each day to their studies as well as to prayer. The prayerful attitude that permeated the day as well as the seven times specifically dedicated to prayer that would evolve into the divine office were the nourishment of their day. The Eucharist was less frequent, usually only on Sundays. Some who dwelt in complete solitude would go months 
and apparently even years without receiving the Eucharist. Simplicity was cultivated, including simplicity in their emotions and in their attitudes. They sought apparently to be mindful and intentional about their actions. I've read that they were attentive to how they washed clothing and utensils and how they spoke to one another. Mindlessness was the enemy of the inner journey. The desert Amas cultivated solitude in order to intensify their inner journey to their goal of union with God. Solitude could be found in the city as well as in the desert. It was not uncommon for these women to move between their monastic communities and the desert. The cell, whether in a monastery or the desert, was important to their spirituality. The cell was the place of spiritual combat, the place where one faced one's truest self and deepened awareness of one's sin and woundedness brokenness. I've read also if the aesthetic could not find God in the cell, then she would not find God elsewhere. The true aesthetic remains then and now within the cell in mind, body and spirit and perseveres there until she attunes and attains true unity with God. I've read that aesthetics often own books, codices of the scriptures, especially in Coptic. The vernacular of Egypt were developed. Secular as well as sacred writings were read. Texts from the fathers in Coptic and Greek letters of Athanasius and others during the Christological controversies and the writings and sayings of other monastics would have been found in many monastic communities. For example, the aesthetics the Juliana and Melania were noted for their large and varied collection of books. It might seem that the desert aesthetic and monastic were isolated from the local and universal church, but the contrary was true. People came for spiritual direction and counseling. Bishops often involved the aesthetics in heated theological debates. Monastics and hermits, when opportunity came their way, were evangelistic in seeking to convert non-believers to Christianity. They understood themselves as defenders of the faith. Surviving letters and treatises reveal people deeply concerned with the development of Christianity and theology. And so, often in my daily journey, and especially if you join us on our Facebook Live and our website, and eventually 
I'll try to connect this to YouTube as well. But I'm, I, I mention the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers quite a bit, and so I felt I needed to offer some historical context into how this desert spirituality, which I think can contribute in a positive way, in a healthy way, to the city, to the suburbs, to the human condition today. Desert spirituality, I've read, is characterized by the pursuit of abundant simplicity. Simplicity grounded in the possession of little and the abundance of God's presence. For me, it is a wonderful pursuit in identity. What do we find and in whom do we find our identity? Who is the deep me, the deep you? How do we identify ourselves? And thinking through that. And so, tune in next week, dear friends, as I explore the desert way and how through prayer and listening and silence this desert spirituality offers us a perhaps a new way of relating with ourselves and with one another. Especially as we're mindful of our thoughts and words. Especially during this time. Let me close this episode today with a prayer or a poem really no a prayer a, a petition prayer from a book Race and Prayer Collected Voices Many Dreams edited by Malcolm Boyd and the Right Reverend Chester Talton retired Bishop Suffragan in Los Angeles. So let me close with this prayer. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael, deliver us from deceit. God of Noah, Canaan, and Ham, deliver us from betrayal. God of Rachel and Leah, deliver us from rivalry. Make more of us, make peace of us, make sense of us, we pray. Amen. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay blessed. <laughs>